Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Good morning, John. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate learning more about Marfan. As I was mentioning to you a minute ago, I uh, I have lipodystrophy, and we have people in our lipodystrophy community that also have Marfan. So this will be a really exciting wow. opportunity for me to learn more as well. Nice. So tell me when you were diagnosed with Marfan's. I was diagnosed at the age of eight years old, which is pretty rare because that was 1966, and Marfan's was really not very well known. The reason how I got diagnosed was I had a family doctor that saw my long fingers, saw the sunken chest, uh, saw the long legs, noticed a different, you know, that, that nearsightedness, and he decided to send me to Children's Hospital in Boston where he knew an orthopedic surgeon to evaluate me on the bones to see what was going on. Okay. And that orthopedic surgeon knew right away? He had a strong inkling, and then he sent me to an ophthalmologist. Now, people that know Marfan syndrome, especially doctors, they, their eyes get big when I tell them the story because 1966, there really wasn't much known. But these doctors did have it on their radar, and the ophthalmologist is the one that told my mother and me that you, your son has Marfan syndrome. Of course, he didn't have any bedside manner, so he just blurted it out. And of course, I thought I heard muffin syndrome, so I, <laughs> I guess my humor kicking in. And on the way home, I said to my mom, well, you know, I have muffin syndrome. I hope it's chocolate chip. <laughs> and she remembers that <laughs> to this day. Yeah. That far surpasses any of the diagnostic stories <laughs> that I've heard. I, too, would prefer chocolate chip muffin syndrome. Yes, to, I would, too. <laughs> to any of our other rare diseases. So after uh, you learned you didn't have muffin syndrome, uh, how how did you feel? Did your mom talk with you about it? Did she know yeah, how they, to talk about it? They didn't it? really have much to tell her as far as what it was. They just said it could affect the heart. That's the basic. Okay. And then as I went along, she, of course, my mother was a doting mother, made sure that I you know, saw the eye doctor yearly and got checked up. But they really didn't understand it. It wasn't even – even when I had my appendectomy in 1981, uh, knowing I had Marfan, so I just told the doctors, and I'm glad I did because they were more careful when it comes to the heart. So okay. there was a, it's only until recently has Marfan's really gotten more known. So you went to school. Mm-hmm. And did you do any activities, or did she keep you away from activities because of your heart? No, because at that time, we didn't know not to do those things. So okay. I lifted weights. I did, like, the ultimate thing you shouldn't do. Absolutely. So I was lifting heavy weights. And why were, why did you choose to lift weights? I did that because I was very tall and thin. So I had this, the typical 
uh, known type of tall and thin. So I wanted to gain some weight, muscle. I wanted to look better, of course, being a young man. Um, but all my efforts were very difficult. It was very difficult to gain weight uh, and to gain muscle because that's how Marfan's, the muscle and the fat does not collect the way it does in a, a healthy person. Correct. Now, we do know a little bit more about these types of diseases, but at the time, were you trying to eat more as well as, as working out? Yes. And and was that a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, it was a frustrating idea. <laughs> it didn't work. It, I gained maybe like five or ten pounds in a, a year and a half. Okay. And so that, there were not enough chocolate chip muffins no, to— and, No, and I didn't know at the time that the things that you eat, uh, how they react to your body— I had lactose intolerance. I didn't know that. So I right. was drinking milk like crazy and ice cream. And- it was because those are the things that, yeah. right, milk builds bones Absolutely. and strong muscles. Absolutely. Right? That's what yeah. we're told. Yeah. So that is frustrating. Yeah. Did you talk with any of your friends about having uh, Marfan? I did. Um, I had some very good friends that, like my friend Lloyd uh, and others that were very supportive of me, but still we didn't know much about it. It right. wasn't until 1990 when I had my whole world came to a close. I mean, not a close, <laughs> almost a close, when I had an emergency dissection. And that's when Marfan's really t- took over my life. And how old were you then? I was 31. Okay. And what is an emergency dissection? Yeah, an emergency dissection is, um, well, with Marfan syndrome, I'll give you the answer in a second, but with Marfan syndrome, it's a connective tissue disorder, so it affects the aorta the heart, the eyes, the lungs. Our connective tissue was weaker than other people's connective tissue. So my connective tissue, because I was working out, wasn't helping me. It was making more stress on my heart, stress on my aorta. So a dissection is, first you have an aneurysm. And that's sort of like, a, have you ever seen a, fl- a tire fill with air and it gets almost like a bubble? Yes. That's an aneurysm. Right. Now, when it perforates, then it's a dissection, and that's what I had in 1990. Okay. Excellent description. No Thanks. Problem. That helps. You're, you're experienced in explaining. <laughs> yes, I unfortunately am, yes. You become really good <laughs> explaining these difficult scientific uh Situations in, in layman's terms, so to speak. Correct? I've had to, and I've actually had to translate that to doctors and, and show them world examples that they would understand, like with chronic pain, right. you know, and, and with fatigue, which I have a lot right now. Um, you know, I could tell them it's like having a bad cold or a bad flu. So I can make it more understandable. Yeah, that's great advice. So at 31, you you have this terrible experience and your world changes. Absolutely. What happens? Um, well, the experience itself, uh, I was a month in the hospital, and uh, they were very concerned that my valve, because I have a mechanical valve, aortic valve, part of a Bentol procedure, they were afraid it would be infected. And, and I was in the hospital basically watching to see I would, that the infection would go away. After that, my life changed. I could no longer work out with weights. I was very I was discouraged of drinking alcohol, which is not something I wanted to hear. Yes, especially as a young man. Um, things, so things totally changed. Uh, but what I did is I learned that there's things I can do that I, I, that are enjoyable and that are worthwhile, and that's what I focused on. And my mom was a great help with that because she said, "Do things that you love. You know, do more writing. Do more. You know." Of course, I had a career also, so my career was hard because I missed a whole month uh, off and another month to recover. So I missed two months. But thank goodness I went back to my job. But even then, that wasn't the same because I had less energy. I was in pain. And those things 
went on to this day. So though that actual medical event uh, not only changed your understanding of Marfan's, but it sounds like it also changed the way your body was reacting to the disease. Absolutely. Is that correct? Yeah, that's why I work really hard on my advocacy to have people have elective surgeries, not have emergency surgeries. Okay. Because there's much, heart, much more trauma in an emergency situation than an elective surgeon so surgery. Potentially an elective sur- surgery could prolong the progression of the disease. Is that correct? Well, one of the things it does do is it eliminates or lowers the chances of trauma on the body. Okay. Because usually with a, a elective procedure, you're in, not you're out like that <laughs> the same day, but within days you're out. Right. And then the recovery could be like a month, two months. Right. Not like in my situation, which I really never really recovered. Because um, you didn't max in an elective, you're not maxing your body out. You right. you you are hopefully doing those um, surgeries when your body is in fairly good condition. Exactly. Right? Okay. Absolutely. That makes. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yes. And do you feel like you're able to um, help others come to that conclusion? Yes, I, okay. I've done that in my advocacy work. Um, um, it's it's. And I'm sure we're going to probably talk about that, but when I became disabled, uh, which wasn't until 2001 that I actually filed, but I really should have filed a long long time before that because after the 1990 dissection, I was never the same. Everything was more difficult. I had less uh, energy. I had more pain. It was just I was really literally killing myself by working 40 to 50 hours a week. Right. But I was stubborn. I didn't want to lose my career. I, I worked so hard to get where I got. Um, and actually, I had a pretty lucrative career, so it was very difficult to decide to do it, but I had to. Yeah, but it took you many, many years to come many, to that. It took me many, many years. So I do help people with that, helping them with the decision. I tell them nobody should rush into it. They should be, you know, it's because it's a very difficult decision to stop working. And also financially, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, it you really know? is. And the emotional component um, it was very hard for me. Because I was, I was very depressed. Uh, it's natural, though, to have chronic illness and have anxiety and depression. That's something that I think I wish more doctors understood. It's, it's part of the circle of having this, the pain and the fatigue and the problems and the loss of things that you were able to do. Uh, there's so many factors that need to be understood. I think all of that is true. Although you said your mom helped you. Yeah. Um, really guided you and, and focusing on what you loved. No, no, she just right. had a very strong conviction that we should live good lives and we should do everything possible to be a positive influence on the world. And you know, she, she's, she's still alive. So I don't want to sound like she's passed on, but unfortunately she has uh, dementia. So that's oh, I'm, disgusting I'm really sorry condition. to hear that. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's really challenging. Yeah. So you have more than one rare yes. disease, correct? Yes. Tell us about your other one. Yeah, um, I have Ehlers-Danlos Classical along with Marfan syndrome, uh, EDS, EDS has several types, uh, Ehlers, that's what Ehlers-Danlos it is, several types. I have classical, which is, has to do with uh, my skin is very soft, uh, it's stretchy. I used to be, when I was younger, be able to touch the floor with my hands. So I meet the minimum criteria for a classical, but I never knew that until I started the EDS New England uh, Massachusetts group with uh, my co-leader, Diana Cleveland. And how was, when was that? That was in 2011. So you were di- diagnosed in 2011? No, until 2012. I ran it by a geneticist that's uh, actually a, a colleague and friend. And uh, he says, yeah, you, you fit the minimum of the, of the classical. And we discussed the similarities, although Ehlers-Danlos is collagen-based and 
Marfan is fibrillin-based, still they're connective tissue, and they're like cousins. Okay. So having two diseases versus one, Mm -hmm. does that change the way that you have to think about treatment and your education about each disease? Yes, it it does. Um, With Ehlers-Danlos, it's far less researched. more direct research needs to be done done in that in the because it's not just Ehlers Danlos; it's comorbidities of both conditions. Right. Um, some are similar in the two: uh, musculoskeletal pain, uh, you know, heart in, heart indications. How you got to watch certain things with Ehlers Danlos; it's more tachycardia, Marfan is more arrhythmia. Uh, I have more of the arrhythmia issues. Um, okay. So there's quite a long list of things that are similar. Mast cell disorder, uh, you know, POTS, dysautonomia is a ton. But I don't have all of those things. I have mostly the Marfan. I definitely fit the criteria for Marfans, and I definitely fit the criteria for the minimum for classical Ehlers Danlos. So I know when I have an emergency, and I'm very lucky, it's not very often. And I know that I have to go to the ER and I talk, I I let them know the condition I have and I know for sure they're not going to know anything about it. Um, You have two. Do you have a preparedness plan? Do you take in any materials or do you, what's your plan of action when you need to describe both diseases in an emergency? Well, the good thing is uh, if you go to one hospital and you have your doctors at one hospital, which I now have and I've had for several years, it makes it a lot easier. Right. Because I tell my doctors I'm heading in. And the ERs have gotten to know me because of the t- many times that I've come in for very valid reasons. Um, but if you don't have that as a patient, you see many different uh, hospitals, it is good to have some sort of a preparedness plan with you. But I know once a lot of... Um, People that I work with are ER, that work in the ER, and they've told me that they have limited time. So I tell people, please bring in something concise, a fact a fact sheet, yes, uh, information on your own personal. But you can't bring too much because they're, they're trying really to rule out, you know, a serious problem. Right, right. So where's the first place of resource that, uh, in, you know, information about the disease uh, that you recommend people go to? I, I think with, as far as Marfan um, syndrome goes, absolutely the Marfan Foundation. Okay. Uh, as far as Ehlers-Danlos, there's so many organizations and support groups, so I don't want to go down a list and, and make a choice. I think that they're all very, very good. So you have two rare diseases. Um, both uh, are associated with a significant amount of fatigue as well as many other issues. Yes. And you're involved in two advocating for two different communities, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. How do you find the time <laughs> to get out of bed and get it all done? Well, I know my body will only allow me to do 10 to 15 hours a week because if I go over that amount, I literally crash and I'm bedridden. Um, so I really am very good, thank goodness, my brain. I'm very organized. So I do about two to three calls a day. That's what I allow myself. Okay. If I go over that, then I'm in trouble. Right. So I, it, I'm, I'm also very stubborn like my mom. I'm type A, unfortunately. So that's the worst thing you want to be is type A and be disabled. Absolutely. Really <laughs> challenging. Is push, I push myself to do these things. But, I do, but my advocacy work is very uh, fruitful and not, not financially but in every other way. Right. Helping people really helps me. 
It's so yeah. you you find you're sub, you're really it's a coping mechanism for yourself as well yes, for the disease. Absolutely, I feel the same way for sure. I, I'm sure I get you do. that. Yeah. So you're expending energy, but you're also um, taking care of yourself at the same time a little bit by helping yes. others with the disease, right? Oh, absolutely, and and I know. And others should know when they do have a condition that they should understand the condition, what testing has to get done. So I'm very careful with my testing. Uh, you know, I, I have yearly MRAs. I have echocardiograms at once a year. I have, of course, blood work. And yeah. my team is all at one hospital, which I wanted. And I allow them to talk to one another, which sometimes that's a, a negative because then they all come and pounce on me if I'm not doing something. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I definitely sometimes are more fearful of getting in trouble with my physician than than anyone else. Um, so you worked 40 to 50 hours a week uh, prior. You didn't being going from that to managing your yourself and, and really listening to your body at 10 to 15 hours a week didn't happen overnight. No. How did you come to that determination? Um, when I was working full-time, uh, I actually had a colleague say to me, because he saw me bent over at, out in a field at a, at a job that I was at, and he says, you really want to die here? You know, and he kind of made me think, and I go, of course not. Because I saw myself getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And obviously he did, too. And he did, too. Absolutely. So I, I just I knew I had to do that. But I thought by cutting my hours back, because I did that in the 90s, I cut my hours back after I left the position I was in. And I became a consultant thinking, OK, I can control my own time. I can still make very good money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that turned out to be a failure because I'd made money. But the people I worked for were impressed by my work. They were hounding me to hire me. And I said, this is not stress I want. So yeah. even in these, even cutting back to that 10 to 15 hours didn't make me feel any better. What do you advise your community when you talk with them about slowing down? I tell them to listen to their bodies. Um, a lot of the people in the community, uh, I mean, really suffer, uh, suffer quite a bit. In fact, I'm very lucky that I don't have the pain that a lot of my members have. So I tell them to listen to your body. Don't be hard on yourself. Find ways to relax. Uh, I say find, find a, like a happy box, meaning that a box full of happy movies, things that make you happy, pictures. It's good to have something close by because you, you can very easily get down and depressed because of the situation of having a chronic illness and right. a lot of people not even being understood by their doctors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you – when you're walking down the street, mm -hmm. do you think people would know you have a rare disease? Um. No, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems with having an invisible disability. They'll see my height, always oh, tall, he's yeah. always thin, but they have no clue it's Marfan syndrome or if it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Then that's one of the biggest plights that an invisible disability is. And even when the medical community, because I do work with a lot of doctors in advocacy work, they don't, they're not been trained in disability. They're not trained with invisible disability in medical school. So it's almost like something that they need to learn that – just because someone looks fine, like you and I, right. we look like there's nothing wrong with us, but right. we seriously have some major issues. Right, exactly. Yeah, I find that. Um, again, I was talking about um, the connection between lipodystrophy and, and Marfan's and, and some individuals with Marfan and lipodystrophy because of the connective tissue and the lack of adipose tissue. I think it's more obvious, yes. but when you have just one, mm -hmm. I mean, I look extremely athletic. So not only do I not look like I have a rare disease, I, right. I'm like 
almost the epitome of what we consider like mm-hmm. healthy, right? I'm very fit right. looking because you can see my muscle. Yes. And so it is really challenging um, because I know that people's perception of me is the exact opposite of what's happening at any right. given time. Yes. I mean, right now, uh, I'm sitting across from really handsome gentleman who looks like you're ready to go back to the office. Where is that guy? Is that guy here? <laughs> <laughs> but I have an in- inclination that mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. So tell me, how do you feel today? Um. Right now, very, very fatigued. Um, I right. mean, this is so important that I wanted to come, but normally I would have stayed home and, and just rested. Um, but I knew the importance of this. So, you know, my, my, one of the things that, I, that I, I really like to get across is fatigue yep. uh, and chronic pain. Um, when I filed for disability, which I, I was telling you that how difficult it was for me to decide to do that, when I decided to do it and bite the bullet and I went into disability because I'm a social person thinking I can relay what's going on, the first thing the gentleman said to me was, you're disabled? And I could feel my fingers clenching into a fist. I was yeah. about to punch him and knock him over the desk, but I thought that's not going to help me get disability. So right. I drew a breath and it just came to me. I never thought of it before. It's just my mind works very quickly. And I said... Think about the, I want to just explain just part of my disability to you. Think about the last time you had a bad cold and you ached all over, you felt like crap, but you probably still went to school or work, whatever you were doing that day, but you hated being there. That's how I am two to three days a week. And I let him think. And then I go, now think about the last time you had a bad flu and you not only ached from head to toe, you had such little energy that just getting out of bed to go to the bathroom was a feat. I said, that's how I feel four to five days a week. And his face turned totally red, and he was nice to me the whole way through, and he thanked me at the end of explaining to him about invisible disabilities. That is an excellent explanation. It is really hard to explain to someone Mm -hmm. that um, we're doing the very best we can to get through the moment, and we're happy to do it, Mm -hmm. but don't mistake our... Our energy and momentum right now for what's going to happen for us in an hour. Because you and I will probably be in bed for the (laughs) next few days. Absolutely. Right? And it's worth it. But you have to decide what's worth it, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. When I explain fatigue, I talk about and I tell people when I advocate for them and I show them what they should be putting in in their application or along the way is they need to talk about, which I talk about, is uh, sometimes I can't even take a shower. I don't have the energy. It's not like I'm lazy. Believe me, I'm not lazy. Right. I have, don't have the energy, and I'm afraid if I do shower, that's going to knock me out. I've showered and sat on the toilet for like 40 minutes because yeah. I had no energy to get up. That's it, So yeah. it's important for people, especially the medical community, to understand Fatigue isn't you go and sleep. It's, you know, it's different from being tired. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole different element to it, but, yeah, that's... Um, that's important to know. And it's really, I mean, again, both you and I are advocates, and yes. we can advocate to our community about how to manage that. But you kind of have to figure it out a little mm-hmm. bit on your own, too, right? You do. And yeah. you can you predict, do you think, like, yesterday, could you have predicted your fatigue, or did you wake up with it and you just knew today's a tough yeah, day? Yeah, I, I, I can never tell whether I'm going to have that flu day or the cold day. Yeah. It's really hard to tell. It's brutal. 
Because right. I also have dizziness. There's so many things. That's another thing about having a chronic condition, which you know. It's more than just fatigue or pain. Right. You have dizziness. You have all these other issues. And I have osteoarthritis. I have costochondritis. I ha- it's, a, it's like a long Sesame Street <laughs> list of, of conditions. And, you know, I have to laugh because you know, I don't want to cry. But crying is okay, too, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. You have to. Right. You have to let it go. No, it is. It is. I love talking with people like you because you could tell me how terrible you feel. And if I laugh, you know that I'm laughing (laughs) because I'm not, I don't think it's funny. That's right. It's just like, of course, it's so bad, it's ridiculous. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's just like. I'm sure you've probably gotten people come over and say, gee, you look good today. And then they they know you, they go, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I go, well, it took me about two hours to look like this. And I'm a guy. Yeah, yeah. If I was a woman, it would probably take a lot longer. And it does because a lot of women that. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, EDS who have EDS, my members, they're mostly women. Not that men can't have it, but they take a lot of abuse because they do look good. Now, know? is that um, just the the statistics of it, or is it that the men are really underdiagnosed, men or do are, we know? Men are, no, men are definitely underdiagnosed, and they're affected usually later in life. Okay. It's the hormonal area, hormonal part. That affects the women in many horrible ways. Yes, I say that that's true for lipodystrophy, and I say Mm. uh, yet again we get the short. We draw the short stick on that one. Absolutely, it is. It's it's absolutely our bodies are not just one disease, right? Right. It's a combination of all of our other genetics, another disease, our hormones. Mm-hmm. Our diet and lifestyle. I mean, we really are. That's a very good point because yeah. people seem to think, okay, Marf, I have Marfan syndrome. You have far more than Marfan syndrome, or you have far more than Ellis Danlos syndrome, or any condition, Lowe's Dietz syndrome. You have a number of things going on. The right. thing is, I tell people treat the symptoms. You know, right. work the symptoms. That's the most one of the most important things somebody can do. Yeah, but there's a lot of, um, sadly, and this is what got me more passionate about opening a group in 2011 for EDS was I saw the EDS people that I was helping really being uh, treated disrespectfully, the women being disrespected by their doctors, told it's all in your head, you know, or go ahead and make make as good a life as you can. There's nothing I can do for you, which is total BS. There is many things that can be done. It's just unfortunately some doctors don't want to take the time, but they shouldn't be condescending to a woman or any woman or any man too, but mostly women. That get treated like that, like you're, it's not a real thing. I go, oh, really? Okay, so her subluxations are not real. You know, her GI issues, her gastroparesis isn't real. Right. You know, I mean, on and on, I could go on and on and on. It just takes a doctor to want to really help somebody. It does. It rare disease physicians um, are rare. I mean, we can overuse the yeah. term rare, but <laughs> it is. It's really difficult. Yes. But uh, I I also find um, that that. We do still have to educate ourselves and be responsible for advocating for ourselves and mm-hmm. work with our physician and understanding our disease, Absolutely. which is hard because you feel terrible. Yeah. It's confusing. Mm-hmm. There aren't solid answers. Absolutely. Um, do you work with the the young in, in your communities in coaching the same way you do with social uh, with talking about disability and, you know, and advising we, we, them there we, on different levels, yeah. Because we, I have, the, I run two groups. I run the, I'm the president of the Marfan chapter, um, Marfan Foundation chapter, in Massachusetts, and I have the EDS group. We do have children. We have young teenagers. We have young adults in college or trying to go through college. So it is a different element to it. 
Right. Because when you're young and having to go through so much, see, I was young and I did go through things, which I didn't mention. But, you know, as far as dealing with being skinny, I had gastro problems, I had pain, but I just fought through it. Yeah. Well, these these people, the, these members and these people that have these conditions that are my members, they're suffering more than I was suffering at their at that age. So why I, do you think that is? I think I think it's a matter of of um, genetics, of how they because you could have two people who have Ehlers Danlos or two people who have Marfan's. One could have had multiple surgeries by the age of 16, and the other one have no surgeries or really hardly any problems till they're like 60. Also yeah. true for our disease. Yeah, it. It is difficult um, because you can you can give a, 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 some guidelines and some suggestions, yes. but it's so important to say, well, this is what works for me, but it might not work Absolutely. for you. And that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. No. It just means it's not working. One size yep. definitely doesn't fit all. No, it does not. Uh, I, I think as advocates, that's one of our biggest responsibilities Yes. Um, it's there's a balance between teaching people how to take responsibility for their bodies, mm-hmm. but also not put too much blame on themselves if it Absolutely. doesn't go the way yeah. they want it to go. That's right. Where it's it's mm-hmm. there's things that we can do, but it's not really in our control completely. Oh, uh, uh, by abso- any means. absolutely, and and that's one of the reasons why direct research is so important. Uh, because we have to go and find answers now. We can't just to put make band aids. We have to, I mean, literally for the, you mentioned about children, there is far more child research than there is a, a, a adult research, especially with Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos. Right. Yeah, and that's tough. I've heard the term the other 50% because 50% yeah. of, of people with a rare disease are mm-hmm. children. Right. The other 50 are adults living with yep. the disease. And it's, I mean, it's, it's human nature that we mm-hmm. focus on and we nurture our children. Sure. But adults... Absolutely. Yeah. Also, still need empathy yes. and understanding and education. Mm-hmm. And the sad, sad thing, unfortunately, with uh, I find this with the EDS population, if you don't have family, and this goes for really any condition, if you don't have family or someone to take care of you or someone to care for you, you're really stuck. Yeah, because you're sick and you don't have much money. And I have, unfortunately, some cases where, uh, you know, they go young women are in hospice. I mean, it's it's insane. But I could do a whole talk on just that. Yeah. But I want to do. I do want to say one thing. I did forget was Marfan syndrome. I had. I was 31 when I had the dissection. That was really the age that people were dissecting in the 30s, because of technology, because of testing, because of medicine, because of surgery. We now have a normal lifespan. For Marfans, for Marfans, that's, that's incredible. Excellent. It, it is the only pe- the only problem, unfortunately, for people like me, though, who are aging with it. There's no research into okay, are we, now you're living longer. What can we do now to help you improve your quality of life? Right. I think that's that's something that we all have to continue to push for. So you find one big treatment, perhaps, or one you know. You, you know some understanding that expands the life, yes. but there's still the burden of the daily living with the disease. Yes, right. And so how do you manage that? Um, for me, it's mostly um, I, I, a positive attitude as I can. I have to admit the advocacy part of what I do, which is uh, multiple levels of advocacy, really gives me fulfillment. Right. I'm not, I know I'm a layperson. I'm not a doctor. But yet I have had doctors that I work with say, John, you know more about these conditions than most doctors do. And also, I've been able to actually literally save lives, and that makes me very happy. Yeah. Yeah, we're citizen scientists. Yes, and, we are. And yeah. I, 
I mean, there's days where I say, I am not doing enough. We are not mm-hmm. moving fast enough. I, you know, there, we have to do this and we have to do this. We have to mm-hmm. do this and I can't do it all. But then I get one email that says, I found your stories online. Nice. I've lived with this my whole life and now I'm not alone. That's and beautiful. That's, right? That's yes. what we do it for. Oh, yes. You know, I've had people write me from the Ukraine, from Australia, I mean, all over the place. And, and part of my advocacy work is I actually help them get better care where they live. They don't have to live near a big city. They don't have to be in the United States. You know, the United States is not the only country that has good medicine. Right. There's a lot of great countries that have good medicine. But, you know, giving them hope. And so for me, I have to concentrate on the positive. Yes, I get depressed. Of course I do. When you have chronic illness, you say the why me? How come? Especially the bad fatigue yes, days. Absolutely. Right? And the pain days too. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, and you the loss, because you lose a lot. I've lost a lot, not just my career, but I lost I, I there's things I can't do with my friends anymore. I used to go camping once a year. I can't do that now. Yeah, that's you know, a bummer. And you know, even going to a party, you have to weigh it and go, can I do this? Mm-hmm. Do I have the energy for this? You know? Yep, I had a debate last night of something to do and not to do. And then this is so important. So you yes. you have to make all of those decisions. Uh, on your website, you, I think mm-hmm. you have something that says the most important, your most important advice. I'm putting you on the spot, maybe, oh, remember. Wow. About Marfans? Or about- um, I, I think in, in tracking your health. Oh, and tracking my health, absolutely keep to uh, um, your testing. You know, make sure you're in tune with your doctors and your doctors are supportive. Okay. Because some people have doctors that uh, I, when I review their cases on disability and medical, I find that the doctors really aren't very supportive. So they actually should move, either move on, try to help them, teach them or move on. But for, I think the key is really uh, listening to your mind in conjunction with your heart. And also do the testing that's required and never just assume uh, these these cures are going to be right around the corner. You have to do something about right, it. You do. You have to advocate. And what about a health journal? Oh, a health journal is, is great to have. Um, I, I usually ask people to do that when they're filing for disability because it explains uh, what they go through on a day-to-day basis. Okay. But you can also use it generally because you can learn from it. You can learn about weather patterns, food that bothers you. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to keep a journal. Absolutely. Isn't it funny that when you, when you, before you really understood your disease and I mean, I think there's the stereotypical, like you hear weather patterns and Mm -hmm. you hear, uh, the older generation say, well, it's going to rain today. (laughs) I can feel it in my bones. But then, (laughs) but then when you have a rare disease, you can actually feel your body changing with the weather patterns. Low pressure system sounds like it's something normal, something okay, but you have, I have more pain in low pressure systems. And I know when one's coming. Not by looking at the TV, I can feel it coming. No, I get a migraine and yep. I say, I mean... Absolutely. It yeah. always makes me laugh because I do. I feel like people are rolling their eyes thinking yes. that I'm absolutely insane. Um, but but those of us who actually feel it get mm-hmm. it. Yes. And I wanted to say one more thing about doctors. We do have some very good doctors. We do. We do. We absolutely. really do. Well, look where we're at in yes, technology. Absolutely. If we didn't, we wouldn't be there. Oh, if absolutely. nobody cared, we would not be where we yeah, are and, now. And they care. They care about us. And and they don't have to be with working with rare disorder patients. They could be working with the general population right. and just dealing with, you know, broken bones, fingers, and colds and flus. Yep. Those are the doctors that are the most special, the ones that know how hard it is to have chronic illness. Absolutely. I agree. 
Well, it's really been a pleasure. I feel like we could talk and laugh <laughs> forever about things that some people might think are not funny at all. <laughs> I I really enjoyed spending time with you, and I, nice I you really appreciate um, you you really pulling yourself out of bed this morning. I'm sure. I mean, I know. I know it was really hard. I do think that it's important work, and I'm glad you you. made the choice to do it, and, and I hope to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.